morning and welcome. We'll start off by welcoming our, the debate class from Hendricks County Avon High School. Thank you for coming and, and watching this today. And your coordinator, Linda Langford. Linda? Yes, thank you for bringing the students here. Today we're here to hear argument in the case of Matthew Haco, and am I pronouncing Matthew's name correctly? All right, um, versus the state of Indiana. The appellant's counsel will argue first, this is a criminal transfer case. Transfer has been granted. Representing the defendant, um, the appellant today, we have Matt, Matthew McGovern. Good morning, Mr. McGovern. Representing the state of Indiana, we have George Sherman and Kelly Loy. Good morning, um, Mr. Sherman and Ms. Loy. As we've been conducting oral arguments, you'll each have approximately two minutes before we may start asking questions. Um, counsel, are you ready to proceed? Yes. May it please the court, I've reserved five minutes for rebuttal. I'd like to begin by thanking the court for the opportunity to be here this morning. On behalf of my client, uh, Matthew Hako, I'm respectfully requesting this morning that this court- Can you speak up just a little bit? Sure. Uh, on behalf of my client, Mr. Matthew Hako, I'm respectfully requesting this morning that this court reverse his conviction and remand this cause for a new trial. Um, we seek this remedy this morning because it is our contention that the trial court deprived my client of a fair trial when it blocked three witnesses who were critical to his defense, to the only defense that could possibly be mounted uh, against the accusations leveled against him and that is simply that the chief witness in this case was not telling the truth. And indeed, my client's three witnesses were prepared to testify that they were family members of the accusing witness, that they had been around her since her birth and several times before and around the time that the accusations were made, and that it was their opinions that she was a dishonest person. We contend that this evidence was admissible under Evidence Rule 608 as opinion evidence. Of course, the trial court disagreed and found that my client did not lay a sufficient foundation for the admission of this evidence. But, as we have briefed below, we believe that the trial court mistakenly applied the wrong foundational requirements to opinion evidence. The trial court, as you know, applied the foundation requirements for reputation evidence, which is an entirely different class of evidence under Rule 608, and is much more stringent than is should be required for opinion evidence. Of course, this case is one of first impression, as the majority opinion below noted, but this issue, that is, what the difference is between the foundational requirements for opinion evidence versus reputation evidence, that, that has been decided by multiple state and federal jurisdictions. And with the exception, by my count, of a single jurisdiction, all other jurisdictions have held that the foundation requirements for reputation evidence simply do not apply to opinion evidence. Mr. McGovern, uh, I want to kind of step in. I, uh, I tend to agree with you on, on the academic uh, a question, uh, the difference between uh, uh, reputation evidence and opinion evidence is an issue of first impression. Um, I don't think Judge Miller uh, th th thought there was much of a difference when we're looking at his treatise 
Uh, it's just a, an issue that's not been explored. But I, I will tell you, I'm really concerned about the practical implications of recognizing that difference or, or finding that it matters in this case. And we, we give judicial officers a great deal of discretion in, in, in decisions to admit evidence or not. Uh, this is, um, I don't want to say an industry, but it is. Uh, it's a special kind of prosecution with a special kind of witness. And our legislature thinks that they're, they're different. And I, I have a real hesitancy to tell a very experienced, very busy trial judge that you got this wrong on an issue of first impression. And, and so wh why doesn't the standard of review, even if, you, even if I agree with you on, on this, this difference, why doesn't that militate or necessitate uh, affirming the trial court? Well, I, I'd begin by saying I, I share your concern. I believe trial courts must be afforded substantial discretion in being able to control the conduct and procedure of a trial, certainly. Um, but that discretion is not unfettered. And the law has traditionally been that while a trial court has broad discretion in um, ruling on the admissibility of evidence and controlling conduct and procedure, a trial court is constrained to admit evidence that meets all the requirements of the rules of evidence. You would agree, though, that it, you, you still are constrained by the requirements of Rule 701. Correct. And, that, though, and let's talk about those, what those would be, because you, you both seem to be sort of swinging for the fences in this, and I don't think it's as clean as what either side say. So when you're looking at it, it has to be rationally based on the witness perception and helpful to the trier of fact. Things like um, how remote it is. You see somebody 20 years ago, she's a liar because she you know, stole a toy and said she didn't steal a toy versus somebody that has ongoing contact. So you would agree that it may not be a um, bright line rule with regard to remoteness and number of contacts. When you look at 403 in relationship to the foundational requirements of 701, those things could be relevant. I think they could be, although I would say that when it comes to recent contacts, First, I think the majority opinion below and the majority of jurisdictions have held that there are there should be no requirement for recent contact. So, if, so but if you're looking at it, it's got to be rationally based on somebody's perception. If you if you see somebody 20 years ago, and they said, "Well, I thought you were lying," right? Versus somebody that sees them several times a year, such as some of the witnesses that that have um, that you purport your client purported to give here. That would go into a 701 analysis. It's not completely off the table. I, I, would say, I would say there could be some point at which it might be irrational to say that I have an opinion about someone's truthfulness. But I would go back to Rule 901 and its purpose. The purpose of Rule 901 is not to ensure that, an, that a witness's opinion is accurate or even correct. The purpose of Rule 901 is simply to establish that this person has an opinion. Okay, but if I go, if I look and say, you're a liar, right? and I, I don't really know you other than having you argue before us in that, would that be relevant at, at, at one of your future I trial? Think, I think at that point, Your Honor, you'd be correct. That would not be rationally. So there has to be some limiting, and, and with the court, with, and, and I've watched how, I, and there's actually two states, I think it's Maryland and Oregon that have both found, not just Oregon. The, that this, sort of these limiting principles. Um, so I don't know, you're not giving me any test 
that can be implemented if you're saying, okay, I can't call you a liar and that come in at a later testimony or at a later hearing. Wouldn't 701 be the natural way of doing it? And the court's got to make those findings. Is it rationally based on a person's perception? So you're going to have to have that perception. That perception, you have to at least know and have some contact with that person to be able yes. to say, I think they're a liar. Yes, I, I would agree with that, that, the, that there, has to be, there has to be some sort of establishment that the person knew the person. And then it has to be helpful for a clear understanding of for the witness's testimony to the trier of fact you know, a temporal element would be, could be considered. It just isn't always required. I, I mean, I would say at that point, I mean, in terms of the slippery, slippery slope really becomes, and, and I think this case is a perfect example, when you start trying to put a temporal proximity to uh, someone's opinion. Um, this case is a perfect example of why that is deep, I feel deeply flawed. Here you have a case where the witnesses that were uh, called to testify knew this, were family members uh, of the chief witness, had been around this chief witness several times around the time that the accusations were made. And, and I understand that. And I, and I understand that with regard to the, the, the sufficiency of the contacts may have been an abuse of discretion with regard to that finding and basing that on the reputational foundation as opposed to opinion. But don't we also have to balance this against 403? I, and, I, and I'm struggling with that. I mean, sorry. I understand your reputation versus opinion, and opinions is, is much broader than reputation. But then yes. I'm looking at, there was a lot of testimony in here where the father called his daughter a liar, where there's text messaging. There's a, isn't this just cumulative? And why, in balancing this out, would we not say, all right, it was error with regard to basing on the sufficiency of context, but we're not, it's cumulative testimony, and that broad discretion plays in on 403. I would say that the evidence certainly isn't cumulative. I mean, you had, obviously, the father's testimony, which could be seen as self-serving. You had the mother on cross-examination, admittedly, saying that, yes, I had said you can't believe everything that she says. But she minimized that and said, what parent can't? But, it, but the lying that they're talking about were only on two factors, lying about hitting someone and lying about stealing a toy. So a child saying these things, relatives come back later and say, I would say, I would say again, if we get back to what foundation is, foundation is simply to determine what, if the proponent, the proponent of the evidence can prove that the evidence they're admitting is what they say it is. This is the, this is their opinion. These questions about is this sufficient for someone to have their opinion can be laid bare on cross-examination, and that traditionally has been But the case. doesn't the court also have the assertion to say, we're talking about a child lying about hitting somebody and lying about stealing a toy when they're younger. I'm going to use the balancing I'm required to as a judge under 403 to say it's out, and there would be no abuse of discretion there in this case. I think that's definitely what the dissent is saying, and I strongly disagree. Evidence Rule 403 is not a catch-all for a trial court to be able to exclude otherwise probative evidence. The law in 403 is very clear. It should be used very sparingly um, and not by a trial court trying to keep from the jury things that the trial judge thinks maybe they shouldn't consider. If we're talking about a child, and I know the dissent brought this up and I know the state did, 
and they seem to indicate that, you know, it's all of our common sense that children tell lies and then maybe they grow up and they grow out of that and so maybe we shouldn't really be deciding whether a child's telling a lie or not. If this is all within our common sense, if this is all based on our parental experience, isn't that precisely what juries are, are called upon to decide? These are jury questions. Rule 403 gives the trial court discretion to exclude evidence that would lead the jury away from the issues they're supposed to be deciding the case on. That's very clear under Rule 403. And what we're talking about here is trying to ensure the accuracy of someone's opinion, not on whether the jury is going to be misled by these witnesses' um, descriptions of this person's veracity. Counsel, what, what about a trial judge's discretion to, uh, to weigh these questions within the overall context of the trial and, and the other pieces of evidence um, that, have, that have come in and to make relevancy determinations in that context. And here, in this, in this case, your client's defense isn't that she's a liar. Your client's defense is, I thought she was my wife. His defense is one of mistake. So why is it relevant um, to go off on this, down this other alley uh, attacking credibility of the witness? Well, he did, he did try to attack the credibility of the witness in his own testimony, in his statement, and of course in his cross-examination of the mother. And it was the only way for him to defend against these accusations because, in fact, the chief witness said he did these things. Aren't those, aren't those inconsistent defenses? I mean, on the one hand, he's saying, yeah, I did it, but I thought she was someone else. And then you're arguing, you know, she's lying, it didn't happen. Well, I. I don't know that it's entirely inconsistent. I mean, he was saying that, in he, that he blacked out, he didn't really know what happened, but by the way, the stuff she's saying could not possibly have happened. I think that's a legitimate defense. I don't think defenses have to be perfectly consistent. And we know, of course, that the jury had issues with the chief witness's credibility. So this was the central issue in the case. And with regard, getting back to Rule 403, because I really do think that's the key here, um, in my opinion, humble opinion, um, if Rule 403 is going to be designed, I think changed, because there's nothing under Rule 403 that says we can exclude evidence because, well, we're worried that maybe this isn't accurate. Maybe there haven't been enough contacts and their opinion isn't good enough. I find a helpful analogy when I've been thinking about this case is to think about the state introducing three witnesses who are going to testify that they witnessed a murder being committed. And witness A, maybe knows the victim, and so could be biased against the defendant. And witness B has vision problems and maybe an anxiety problem, and there's concern about whether he or she would have been able to accurately see what they saw. And maybe witness three wasn't really in a position to see things quite the way he or she said they could. Are we going to say that the trial court can put as preconditions of admissibility that the state is going to have to ensure the accuracy of the evidence before it's admitted? That's certainly not the role of foundation. It's certainly not the role of 403. But the weighing, but, it, but is there a weighing? Because the sole proof, I, she's a liar because of two minor transgressions when she was a child, balancing that out, okay, we've got this opinion testimony, it's pretty remote in time with regard to pretty specific incident. This child victim, why can't they use, why, why is that, why is 403 off? Why can't they weigh that? It's not like every time I saw her, she was lying. She can't even, you know, say what day of the week it is. She'll change that. 
Because it was whether or not the witness's opinion was accurate or not, these witnesses thought this child was dishonest. They didn't say that she just told a few lies. They, a couple of them, I believe, said completely dishonest. These witnesses could be wrong. It could be unreasonable for them to develop that opinion based on um, the interactions that they had with the child. I don't believe it is, but it, it could be. But in their opinion, this child was a dishonest person. Why are we keeping that from the jury? The jury is perfectly capable to look at the basis for these opinions. Mr. McGovern, that goes back to my original question is, I, I really think context matters. And I think that you've got layer upon layer upon layer, 701, 403, and then the, the, the standard of review. I mean, when, you, when you come back, that's, that's what concerns me is you've got, I think this is opened by someone who's testifying about a process. And, and then, you know, the, the desire to bring in all of this um, afterwards, the judge saying, no, you know what, I, I think that's going to confuse the issues. I'm really concerned about a decision from us precluding that kind of discussion. I, I know that your time is up, but maybe if you could think about that on rebuttal. Certainly. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. McGovern. Mr. Sherman. May it please the court, the defendant did not establish a sufficient foundation to attack the child's character. The defendant's foundational evidence was simply too speculative and unreliable, and the trial court did not abuse its discretion in finding this evidence should not go to the jury. Context matters, and we don't say that um, you can form an opinion about someone as a teenager based on what they did as a toddler. And the evidence that the defendant wished to offer to show that the person was dishonest was based on things that happened long ago. For example, one of his witnesses testified that she was basing her opinion on incidents that happened when the child was two to three years old, and then later she indicated it could have been four to five years old. And we know that any child during that time frame is going to be telling lies about incidents with a toy or disputes with siblings. That's simply a part of childhood. It doesn't tell us anything about what the person's character is going to be like later in life. So I didn't find any court that had carved out an exception for children on the opinion testimony. Are you asking us to do this for the first time? I think it's an issue of first impression about how this rule should be applied but, in the context it, we, of children. But I, I, we studied the jurisdiction throughout the country, and nobody has carved out, well, when it comes to opinion testimony, we're going to have a different standard or different foundational requirements for a child than we are an adult. Right, and we're not necessarily arguing for a different standard. We're just saying there's different things a trial court can take into consideration just based on the fact that we know there are differences between children and adults, kind of like we do with other evidence rules. Um, Counsel, the, 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 the dissenting opinion below tries to analyze this, I think, in the context of two different rules at the same time, 701 and, and 803. I'm, I'm not convinced that, that, that that's necessary. Um, why isn't this just strictly an 803 analysis? I, I look at 701 and I actually um, think back to its common law roots. I can remember the late great Dean Harvey teaching evidence 35 years ago and, and, and his assessment of this rule and where it came from is that because it has this language in there making an exception for expert witnesses, it's talking about lay opinion like a lay witness saying, it looked like blood, right? The lay witness is not an expert medical 
um, uh, witness, but they can give a shorthand rendering of the facts. That's what, that, that's what I think 701, 701 is about. 803 is simply about can you put on evidence, reputational evidence, a character for truthfulness, um, and, and why, why isn't this admissible? Um, and the bigger question then simply goes to weight that can be argued in front of the jury. Why don't we doctrine this up by, by looking at 701 in conjunction? Well, I think 701 is important because it does provide some guidance about how we should look at opinion testimony and whether it is rationally based on perception and whether it's going to be helpful to the jury. Um, so these are important factors a trial court could consider when it's exercising its discretion is does that person have a rational basis for that opinion and is it information that's actually going to help the jury um, in their truth seeking? But it, you know, we, we don't allow um, a, a deep examination of, of, of prior incidents in their detail. It's just generally, is this person, do you know this person to be truthful? And, and what is the harm in allowing a witness to say, I believe this witness is, is untruthful? Uh, and then you can argue it in front of the jury. Even the majority um, jurisdictions still require something beyond just a bare assertion that someone's untrue for conclusory observation. They still require some type of foundation um, showing what the basis for that opinion is. There needs to be more than just a person coming in and saying, I think that person's a liar. And the problem with the foundation in this case is that two of his witnesses never even specified the time frame when they saw the child lie or what the actual lies were. And so there is actually no basis whatsoever for the child court to try to evaluate whether they had a valid opinion about the child's character. And then with respect to the other witness, she was stating it was based on things that were um, common occurrences during childhood, such as lying about a toy. And so that's why, in our opinion, this is just simply inadequate to establish a foundation to have an opinion about someone's character later in life. Counsel, do, do your best to give a precise articulation of exactly what the foundation should be. Think, think in, have in mind, you know, a quick reference guide for a trial court, a bench book, you know, when the judge has to make this decision under live fire. What, what precisely is the foundational requirement with the intersection of 608A and 701? I think there's a number of different factors a trial court consider and I don't have an exhaustive list, but I think the important ones would be the relationship between the character witness and the child, um, the recency of those contacts, um, what the basis was for their opinion about why the child was dishonest, do they actually have any factual basis, can they articulate something they've seen the child do that pro would provide a rational opinion about that child's character. And so I think those are the types of factors a trial court should consider when But no other, no other, this, this issue has been debated around the country. No other court, either whether federal or state, has re required all those before an opinion comes in. Right, and we're not saying that those so are So this would be first. We'd be the first in the nation to have this high of a standard to get before opinion testimony comes in. No, I think this would be a similar standard to what Oregon and Maryland use. Um, and as I mentioned before, these aren't a bright line rule. These are just simply factors that a trial court can take into consideration when evaluating this type of evidence. Mr. Sherman, clarify if you would. Are, are you looking for a, childhood, a child witness rule or are you looking for a, even an adult witness rule that requires the same 
recency for foundation purposes. We think it would be the same rule, but a trial court can, can take into consideration a person's age and the amount of time that has lapsed when evaluating this type of evidence. And this court why, is... Why would that be different, though, for a, a child than an adult? If six years have lapsed since the child was any, any contact with the child witness as opposed to six years with the adult witness, what, 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 what's the trial court supposed to do with that? The significance with a child is that the child's character is still forming and under development. We could say an adult, someone in their 40s, their character is probably pretty well set. But someone who's five or six is just beginning their developmental stages and their character formation. I know you've described not a, a, a bright line rule, but a, a series of factors that the trial courts to, to consider. Would your factor test include a bright line rule if the witness is under 18, then all these other things come into play, but if they're over 18, then they don't? Or, or is even that subject to further factors? No, it would be the same standard. It's just a matter of, in the context of a child, um, the timing matters more because of the fact that their character is still developing. Whereas in the context of an adult, even if you have a three or four year gap, that- So the character is crystallized as of 18, so we don't, there's nothing further to be, to be looked at? I wouldn't say it's crystallized, but it's much more likely to be um, more established at that point in time. And so the timing becomes less important the older the person is. Um, and I think there's a number of courts that have noted that because an adult's character is solidified, um, they're not as concerned about if a few years have passed since the last contacts with the character witness. Mr. Sherman, good morning. I, I, um, yeah, I, I go back to the same thing I was uh, asking Mr. McGovern about. I, I really think the standard of review is important. And I, I, I maybe, you know, Justice Moulter had asked you about the foundational requirements under 701. I read them to be kind of low. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think they're, they're, they're probably lower than if we're looking at reputational evidence. But I think that 403 is really important. And I, you know, I, I, talk, I think about this process. We've got all of these child advocacy centers across the state that really help prepare a child witness for this really traumatic process that they go through. And I think that this witness was testifying about a process, and, and that essentially opened the door, and the judge here's you know, an offer of proof and makes a, an evidentiary ruling that, you know, not, not, not in this context. Why, why is that the, the wrong way to do it? The judge is, is thinking about everything that went into this, thinking about what's going to confuse the jury by trial within a trial, and, and they ought to make that call. And it's, it's, I would, why not have that flexibility as opposed to trying to carve out whole classes of people and saying, look at that. Why are you not more likely to get a right answer if you give and you preserve that discretion. Well, we agree it ultimately boils down to trial court discretion. Um, and so we're just saying these are different factors that the trial court can take into consideration when exercising that discretion. Um, and we look at age a lot of times in different contexts. Um, for example, even for a child to testify at trial, we have to show that they actually understand the difference between the truth and a lie and the importance of telling the truth and this court and the Court of Appeals have excluded different statements in the past where that foundation wasn't laid. And so we think it's important to keep that in mind when looking back at something someone did between the ages of three and five, because we don't even know at that point if they understood the difference between the truth and a lie, 
Um, and of course, they're under no compulsion at that point in time to be telling the truth or know the importance of telling the truth in that situation. And so that's an important factor chalk work can think about as well, that this child may not even understood the significance um, of telling the truth when she lied about a toy when she was four or five years old. And so that's an important consideration that the trial court could consider in this type of situation. Do you agree that the, the standard for, you know, the foundational standard for reputation is higher than opinion? Yes. All right. And you, would you agree that the trial court used the foundational standard for reputation in this case? It definitely went through several of the factors for reputation. Right. So if we, f if we find there was an abuse of discretion with regard to the, f the foundational requirements the court put on there, make the argument that under 403, um, on balancing, the um, case will, the conviction will remain. Yes, even if the trial court did abuse its discretion under 608, um, there was no abuse of discretion under 403 because the probative value of this evidence was very low. Um, as mentioned previously, two of the witnesses never discussed when they had seen the witness lie or what age she was at that point in time. And then the other witness said she was basing her opinion on incidents when the child was a toddler. And so it was um, quite reasonable for the trial court to find that this had low probative value and that the prejudicial effect would be quite high because you'd allow these witnesses to come in and repeatedly say that the victim was a liar. But prejudicial, oh, go, go ahead, sorry. Uh, you said prejudicial effect, but is that unfair prejudice? I mean, it sounds like you're just saying that the testimony is not persuasive enough. How is it unfair prejudice? It's unfair because the witnesses would be telling the jury that this teenager is a liar, but the basis for their opinion were things that happened long ago that have no bearing on what her character is today when she's 14 or 15 years you're old. Just, you're just bootstrapping your opinion, where you want the opinion standard to 403. Anytime somebody gets in court and says they're a liar, it's going to be prejudicial, right? A witness sure. is prejudicial. So, but we don't want to allow in unreliable opinion testimony. Um, and so that's one of the main um, reasons it's unfairly prejudicial is because it's telling the jury this person's a liar, but it's based on information that isn't that reliable. But that, that seems circular to me. That seems to just be uh, importing 701 into 403. I mean, the, the, I think the chief's first question is essentially if you lose under 701, how do you still win under 403? And, and you're just giving the same 701 analysis, but under the guise of 403. I mean, part of what I think is important to keep in mind is 403 is not some amorphous balancing. I mean, it gives specific things that you can consider. Unfair prejudice, confusing the issues, misleading the jury, undue delay, or cumulative evidence. And so uh, what I'm not hearing you do is peg to one of those specific considerations what the balancing is. I get that you think the probative value of the evidence is low, but what are you balancing on the other side that's specifically le uh, listed in 403? Well, you have the fact that you're opening up this whole, as Judge Tavides pointed out, Pandora's box, um, where now you have to go into this whole lengthy side litigation about whether the jury should even consider any of this evidence. And it really takes away the trial court's gatekeeping role in deciding um, whether they should have this before them in the first place. And so you can get tied up in this whole side litigation about whether this um, is actually that important. And, and then, of course, the jury's going to be confused about what weight should they give this type of evidence. And no matter what happens, the defendant can still stand up and say, you heard all these witnesses say she's a liar. And so you've had this drumbeat repetition that this person's a liar. And so no matter how much the prosecutor tries to limit the damage from that, it's still coming in and being used for that purpose. Wouldn't cumulative be a better argument for you than trying to superimpose 
that requirement because the father clearly called, called his daughter a liar throughout his testimony. There's text messages between the father and mother where there was allegations that the daughter was a liar and manipulative. You're yes, that would be another basis that would support the trial court's reason in this case, <clears throat> is that there is already evidence in the record he could rely on um, to challenge the victim's credibility. And even if this court were to find that the trial court erred under both 608 and 403, um, the error would be harmless in this case because the defendant um, corroborated much of the victim's account for the incident for which he was convicted. So even if these witnesses had been allowed to come in and say that she was a liar, the prosecutor would be able to stand up and say, well, we know she didn't lie about the defendant sleeping with her because the defendant admitted as much in a statement to police. And we know she didn't lie about the defendant fondling her because he admitted that he was touching her like he would his own wife in bed. And we know she wasn't lying when she said that he told her not to tell anyone what happened because he admitted to police that he told her not to tell anyone what had taken place. And so even if this evidence should have been allowed in, it would have been harmless because of the substantial corroborating evidence provided by the defendant himself and the victim's consistent testimony. And therefore, this court should find that any error um, by the trial court in this regard would only have been harmless. Counsel, one more point of clarification. Uh, when we talk about the recency of contact with uh, whoever, whatever witness we're talking about, their, their character for truthfulness, do you agree that it's not just relevant how recent the contact was before the trial, but it could be even years before if you're talking about uh, when they made an accusation? So, for example, here, of course, there couldn't be any contact be before trial. So can the should the trial judge also think about recency of contact in relation to the time of the accusation? Yes. Now, I think when I've looked at most jurisdictions, they focused on the time of the trial itself because that's when the person's credibility is actually at issue when they're under oath. But I think a trial court could take into consideration as well um, how recent in time it was um, to the incident itself when the um, molestation took place. But in this case, um, it's a significant gap whether we look at the trial itself or the initial report of the molestation because the only time frame any witness ever provided was the ages between two and five and that would have been at least six years um, before the allegation was made. And so they didn't have a recent opinion about this person's character. And so for that reason as well, the trial court was correct to note that many of these things happened years ago and would have had no bearing on this person's character at the time that they testified at trial. Therefore, the state respectfully asked this court to find that the trial court did not abuse its discretion. Counsel, that, that last point you made, that really goes to probative value, doesn't it? This remoteness idea? Yes. And can't that be examined simply in the context of 403? It could be. And we're not saying it has to be viewed under only one or the other. But I think it's, it's a consideration that applies under both standards, whether it's 608 or 403, in terms of looking at what the probative value and how is this information going to be helpful to the jury when it's evaluating this person's character. So under either rule, um, it's definitely a consideration the trial court could look at and find that because it had been so long, um, it wouldn't help the jury in its truth-seeking function at the time of trial to allow in these opinions that she's a liar based on um, things that she did when she was between the ages of two and five. Therefore, the state respectfully asked this court to find that the trial court did not abuse its discretion and affirm the defendant's conviction. Thank you, Mr. Sherman. 
Mr. McGovern, rebuttal. I'd just like to hit a couple of points really quickly. Um, to be sure, this court can affirm on any legal basis that has support in the record, even if the trial court didn't consider it. I would concede that. I would note, though, the trial court did not make a 403 determination. Uh, the dissent mentioned a case by this court called Snow versus State, where this court mentioned that in um, making determinations about what the, whether the trial court abused their discretion under 403, this court's going to give the trial court broad discretion because it's the trial court that can determine credibility of the witnesses, and a, an appellate court with a cold record has difficulty doing that. That said, whether or not this evidence was cumulative, it would be a very difficult determination for this court to make. It was the trial court that was in the position to make that determination, and the trial court didn't. So whether the mother was convincing, or the text messages were convincing, or whether my client was convincing when they called um, the chief witness uh, a liar or said that she had told untruths, is something we can't know here. What we do know is that there were three family members who were, you know, not the, who were more removed, who weren't parents, who didn't minimize the lying, who were prepared to say that this witness was dishonest. And whether or not that's cumulative would have been something I think the trial court should have addressed. Um, so there are no findings really for this court to defer to when it comes to a 403 analysis. I would say again, the, the recurring theme with the dissent and with the state's argument is this evidence isn't reliable. That is not the role of foundation. It is not the role of 403. That is a jury determination. If we add these preconditions for admissibility, then we can start doing it with eyewitness testimony. We can say we're going to eliminate somebody who witnessed a crime because we don't think maybe their vision wasn't good enough. Maybe they had a certain anxiety disorder. Maybe they were a child. And they're not, as the state argues, prepared to be able to tell the lie or the truth accurately enough. So what would go into, if, if the court has to determine, the opinion has to be one rationally based on a person's personal perception. Something's got it. That has to mean something. What would have to be shown before you're a liar? I think the majority of jurisdictions say if you know this person and your opinion is that they're a liar, that's enough. And all of the deficiencies with that opinion can be laid bare on cross-examination. That's, that's fairly clear. And again, we do not have a determination from the trial court on 403, simply a concern that, well, maybe these people are wrong about their opinion. That's so, just not so a basis it's, for if exclusion. It's just, if it, has, it also has to be helpful to the fact finder to determine a witness's credibility. So if I saw her steal a cookie when she was young 20 years ago, you're saying that's coming in. And I, I saw her, and she said she didn't when I asked, and she had the cookie crumbs around her mouth. That's enough to get in. She's a liar. I would, I would think so, and I, I would say, I don't know many defense attorneys who would dare put that kind of witness on the stand. I mean, you're not just going to have that witness crumble under a cross-examination. Your entire case is going to be compromised. So some of this, I think, um, are, are practically going to be eliminated by attorneys who aren't going to try and jeopardize their case by putting on something that weak. It's not that weak in the record here. Um, by my reading of the record, some of the witnesses were, I am basing my opinion based on years of experience with this right, child. but you're also asking, you're saying this, this is an issue of first impression. This court has never stated what are the foundational requirements for opinion testimony, and you're saying there are none. I, I'm not. I, the, dissent, the dissent mentions a couple of cases where, for example, I think investigators who only had had interactions with 
uh, the witness during the investigation. And the courts applying Rule 608, as it should be said, you know, that's not enough. You really didn't know this person. You only knew them from the criminal investigation. That's really not an adequate basis. Here you have three family members who spent holidays, outings, had known the child since the, the child was born. That should be enough under Rule 608. And I, I would say, as in, in closing, that under Rule 403, um, it has been held that 403 should be applied sparingly, that it is not designed for a trial court to exclude evidence just because they think it may not be reliable, that the court should maximize the probative value and minimize the prejudicial value. As far as harmless error, this entire case came down to credibility. Whether or not the mother and the father were convincing and whether this child was a truth teller or not is something we don't know here. What we do know is that the central issue in this case was that witness's credibility, that the jury was already struggling with that credibility because my client was acquitted on three of four charges, three of the most serious charges. Credibility went to the heart of this case. And with the prosecution being able to put in evidence that delayed disclosure, for example, doesn't show deception, my client being blocked from calling his own witnesses, I would urge this court to find that that is not a fair trial. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Well, on behalf of the court, I want to thank you both for your advocacy. And I, I, this is our last oral argument this morning. I don't know if the two of you have, or the three of you have time to answer a couple questions from the Avon class after we, um, after we leave. We appreciate this. That concludes the hearing. We will be discussing the case and issuing a, an opinion in due course. Thank you very much. All right.